I've been looking all day for this. I found it. I found my i uh, my i i watch Apple Watch charger. What? Oh, that's success. Yeah, you would have never found it if you yeah. didn't spill your drink all over the floor. Yeah, Andrew just heard me. Um, what? How would you describe the scream? If you were giving birth, which will never happen, but that is you don't what know I that it would sound like. You like, don't know that. Like an Arnold Schwarzenegger Jr. type situation. <laughs> um, yeah, or like a bad Milo situation even. <laughs> you ever see that movie? No, what's that? Okay. Uh, don't worry about it. Um, I'm going to have to look it up. It's like a, a gremlin comes out of Camarino's ass. <laughs> oh, I see. I see. Can you explain to the people why you screamed? <laughs> um, it was not a bad Milo situation. I spilled a drink. And <laughs> poster for the smoothie. He's like spooning with the he's spooning with the thing. I spilled a drink in our studio, aka my room. Yeah, it's a great poster. And um <laughs> I have not had a spill of a drink this massive in my room in the history of me being in this room. I'm so careful with beverages and crumbs. And this was absolutely devastating. And it got all over all my computer wires. And I don't know how I'm going to recover from this. I heard it hit the ground, but I didn't see the initial drop. Was it just like a, your hand slipped or was it like you knocked it? I knocked it. It was a bottle. There's no cap on it because I didn't want to have to be constantly unscrewing the cap on our recording. God forbid that I try to make a good podcast. That is annoying. Yeah. Um, Not to me. I'm saying. To and I, yeah. And I specifically requested our intern get a carbonated beverage. And so when this spell uh, fell, it just fizzed everywhere. Um, I guess the one good thing is there's no sugar in here. So like, it's not really gonna, you know, attract ants. Yeah. And maybe maybe for what the drink that you had asked for might've, right? Was no, that's just water. No, it's just liquid death, man. Uh, liquid death, if you're listening. Oh, it does have antioxidants. I wonder if those are good for wood. <laughs> the next 10 minutes will be Nick reading the back of this uh of this Okay, drink. Andrew, you want to guess how much how much niacin is in sparkling ice classic lemonade? Niacin. Yeah, do you think it's do you think it's more or less or the same as the amount of biotin? I'm going to say the same. Oh, it's the same. It is? Oh yeah, it one is. One for one. But how much vitamin A is in here? A good, good question. Yeah. The vitamin same. A for you're an asshole. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, so this is uh, welcome to a bad Milo episode. Of... Yeah, not not quite. Today we are going to be talking about something uh, a filmmaker similar to Ken Marino, Steven Spielberg. Yes, this is our first Spielberg movie. Yeah, right. Um, it is on the Cinema Chain Gang podcast. Presented by Liquid, presented by Liquid Death. <laughs> um, yeah, this is our first Spielberg movie ever that I've seen. Ever, yeah. Um, yeah, we've not covered. Have we? Co- well, I don't think we've covered any. Well, it's kind of weird, actually. I just got. I have like a stream on here in the background um, because I'm listening to you, but I'm also watching the world as well right now. Okay, what's and, happening in the world? Uh, they, there's an ad for Indiana Jones, um, oh. which, which is in a Steven Spielberg movie, but one of the, some of them are. Um, <laughs> you know, I just saw an old uh, Goonies tease, like the first teaser for the Goonies, and. It was really cool. It was... Also not a Steven Spielberg movie. It's not? No. Joe Dante. No, but Spielberg was involved. I think so. He might have been a ghost director or something. No, he had. He was involved in some way because the point of this teaser was like from the makers of, and it took a letter from each of the movies that they had, like the I from Indiana Jones and the O from The Omen and the E from E.T., and it spelled out Goonies. It was really cool. Spielberg wrote the story, directed by Richard Donner, screenplay by Chris Columbus. That's a good trio, too. Oh. 
1941 is the movie that we're going to be talking about today. As I alluded to last episode, this was the movie that came out in 1979 in between the run of Jaws, Close Encounter of the Third Kind, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and E.T., which are believed to be four of the greatest movies of the 20th century right there. Um, and then you have this film, which nobody talks about. I had no idea anything about it except that it was a Steven Spielberg movie. We have a lot to discuss with that one coming up. The Chain that we are finishing today, Andy Samberg was the lead into that. He was in Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. Previously, he was in Grown Ups 2. Uh, James Kahn was one of the voice actors in Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. He is a very, very small part of 1941. The reason we're watching this mainly is for the actress Lorraine Gary, who plays a sizable, but not like massive role in this pretty huge ensemble of actors who are, it's a mix of recognizable faces, like, oh yeah, him, and then like, legends of comedy and then like just legends of screen like christopher lee um so we've got a big big discussion coming our way with that um, but that will conclude this chain mm -hmm. yeah uh also a rare uh just comedy outing for him at that time or any time yeah spielberg yes yeah. yeah i can't really think of any other straight comedies he's made i mean all of his movies have like injections of comedies in it but like what what would be another one um you know, I can't get over the... I'm not sure I'm stuck on the fact that you were talking about, like, that run of four or five movies that he had. And I have not seen Close Encounters, and I've not seen any any Indiana Jones. So it's sad to me that this is one of the few, <laughs> few during his best period that I've seen. I have also not seen Close Encounters, but I have seen the other three. Uh, and the other three are three of my top 35, 40 movies of all time, mm -hmm. um, which is not controversial to say by any means, but... Yeah, but yeah, as first comedies go, um, I mean, I, as we'll get into this, but I think I, there's a reason he didn't do comedies after this. So, well, we'll talk about it. Yeah. Anyway, let's talk about other things we've been watching. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you've gone eight minutes without talking about a sitcom, so why don't you talk about one now? <laughs> um, yeah, you know, look, I'm proud to say I finished. Nailed that, by the way. It has been almost eight minutes in the podcast. It just made that number up. Wow. I am proud to say I finished. Frasier, which I never thought I would do. I never thought I'd even start it. Um, and, uh, you know, let me tell you, I don't care for it. <laughs> no, it's fine. I respect Whoa, it. really? No, it's fine. It's not bad. But it, the, the quality holds and everything. But I just, it's not what I'm looking for. I didn't get the enjoyment out of watching it. And also, I finally understand what people there people will say things about sitcoms i love like oh like this character becomes unlikable on on friends or something and like i disagree with that but also i'm just defensive because i love the show yeah i finally understand what they mean because i think fraser becomes so deeply unlikable there's nothing redeeming about him at the end of the show Ooh. also by the way at the beginning of the show fraser's a spinoff of cheers fraser is a psychiatrist in cheers meets a wife in Cheers, also a psychiatrist. Then they get divorced in Cheers, spoilers. Then he moves to Seattle, leaves his son in Boston. He, part the premise of this show is him being like an absent father, basically. And I'm, I'm and nobody talks about that. Uh, really selfish guy, I think. And what's most interesting to me is Paramount Plus is doing a revival of the show now, which is also why I wanted to like rush to finish it. I'm so curious how that lands because while the show had an uh, elevated level of comedy that could maybe be the answer to like why people don't watch sitcoms anymore 
he's also a guy that like I don't think anybody wants to see right now. He's kind of like a one percenter that nobody wants to see right now. And like like uh we're try like we're supposed to feel good for the characters of succession. Basically. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, you know it's interesting to me because what you're describing is I don't know if, enough about Frasier to have specific thoughts about the show. I've seen a few episodes and thought it was fine. My big thing is like he sounds like the reverse of the Michael Scott arc, the base of the way you're describing it, where Michael Scott starts out kind of a jerk and then you grow to love him as it goes along, whereas it sounds like you yeah, dislike um, Frasier more and more as you go. Yeah, I also, I think with Michael Scott, it's less of an arc and more of like um, just a reset after like season one, kind of. Um, like they had to actually put the character in a new direction. But with Frasier, it's not like... It's not on purpose. It's just, you know, they're doing so much. Like with every show, the characters just become caricatures at the end. And it's like, it's fun to see him in. It's fun to see Ross nervous. It's fun to see Joey dumb. It's fun to see Frasier in, in have this like indignant outrage about stuff and be stubborn. Yeah. But then at a certain point, you're like, it's too much. Um, easier. It, you're more likely to say that when you don't have a, con- How like many a seasons? connection to the show. Uh, 11, same as Cheers. Yeah, it sounds like it can get exhausting. And a lot of the time, yeah. the writing goes downhill as well. And, so. the, and the indignant stuff, the stuff that he's indignant about is like, you know, um, dinner parties and fine wines and stuff like that. So it is, it just becomes like grating at a certain point. Yeah. I'm like, this guy's not likable. I'm not, one of the things is like, you know, he has a surprisingly low number of love interests in the show. Um, but I'm like, I'm not surprised. <laughs> so... Anyway, uh, very. In- I actually am really interested to see like how this Fraser Paramount Plus thing goes, both f- for what it means with like the health of multicam sitcoms right now, and also what it means. Um, I also just think- as far as like you know his place in this world. I just think the the market. I don't think it's going to do very well, and I don't think it has anything to do with the Fraser property specifically. I think the market has been so saturated by reboots of classic shows sure. that this is like four years too late. Yeah, they were going to do this. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's right. Um, side note, another sitcom where the main character gets actively more and more unlikable, and I don't think it's intentional. Ted Mosby's annoying. And the longer and longer we go to through How I Met Your Mother, the more annoyed that I get with him. Um, I don't find him annoying per se, but I do think my stance on How I Met Your Mother has always been that the people who... I liked the finale, the people who hated the finale would have liked it if it occurred after season three or four, and that was the run of the show. Yeah. But the stretch of the rest of it um, made it not land right with people. I would agree uh, with that. One other thing on Frasier, I do have a feeling that to kind of get past that saturation, I, I think they're going to have like um, a couple Cheers characters on this new version um, at certain points. There's only like eight to 10 episodes. It's supposed to come out around October. But I think they are going to, I think we're going to see Ted Danson or Cliff and Norm. So you're talking about a show that is dragged out a long time with yes. Frasier. Um, I'm talking about today a limited series that Netflix just put out that, you know, it could become an anthology. They could do more with it. But in reality, it, it, I, these eight episodes or 10 episodes that they released of the show Beef is very self-contained. It's a story that has a very beginning, middle and end. You know what I mean? So yeah. if they wanted to extend it, they could. But Beef is a black comedy. Uh, it's a partnership between Netflix and A24, which in terms of my understanding is the first time that's ever happened. 
Uh, and it definitely feels like an A24 product that happened to be made for streaming with the specific story touches and the kind of the deep, dark places it goes to. Mm -hmm. The premise is simple. It's created by Lee Sung Jin. Like I said, 10 episode limited series. It stars Steven Yeun as Danny Cho and Ali Wong as Amy Lau. Danny Cho, he's like this down on his luck contractor. Um, he, you know, has a kind of like a tag along brother um, who is having his own like kind of crisis and is just kind of lazy. Uh, and basically he hates his life. And you have Amy Lau who is trying to sell her business uh, to become a millionaire. She owns like a plant business. She's very wealthy. She is married to the son of a wealthy artist uh, who is kind of like a stick in the mud slash they don't have, they don't get along very well. And she's unhappy as well in a very different place in life. And it's about, they have a road rage incident where the two of them intersect and the length that they go to enact revenge and dares on each other and basically disrupt each other's lives gets taken to like extreme, extreme lengths uh, to the point of absurd absurdity, uh, to the point of good comedy and to the point of genuine suspense and like WTF-isms. Um, the show is exceptional. It is a pressure cooker on top of a pressure cooker across 10 episodes. And it just exists in a way that is very unique. Like there's a lot of avenues that this show could have taken. And the route that Lee Sung Jin takes is he basically makes it the inverse version of everything everywhere all at once, where we, which we've talked about in a little bit. Uh, and it's not just because it starts Asian leads. Um, right. But the big thing, the big thing is it's about everything everywhere all at once is about how the universe no matter what multiverse you belong in, you will always be drawn to certain paths and certain people. This is about how hatred and anger and aggression and dissatisfaction with life and loneliness brings these two strangers together in this like war of words and eventual actual acts of violence and life disrupting huh. stuff. It's about how these two people are basically perfect for each other. Um, and are soulmates, but they don't know it yet because they absolutely hate each other. Um, it's just such a, it's such a cleverly executed idea. It has a great soundtrack. You would love the soundtrack. It's a lot of late 90s, early 2000s bangers. Like the first episode ends with The Reason by Hoobastank. Uh, <laughs> and there's a lot of songs like that. There's a System of the Down song in there. There's a, there's a bunch of stuff like that. And Steven Yeun and Ali Wong are terrific together they are both great scene partners with each other they're great with the supporting cast that's around them there is one member of the supporting cast that is a little controversial right now uh steven yon's cousin isaac in the show it's a great performance but the actor has gotten into trouble for saying some really questionable things so the show has been kind of grabbing headlines for the wrong reason but i don't want people to not watch the show because of that because it is going to be one of the best shows of the year in my opinion and I think it's going to be a strong contender for Emmys in that limited series category. I didn't realize Maria Bello is in it. Maria Bello well. plays the person that uh, Ali Wong is trying to sell her company to. And she's just like the pitch perfect image of like affluent white lady who appropriates other cultures, basically. And a grown up salon. Uh, I, yes. Yeah. Um, I genuinely had no idea that. So the movie, I mean, the show is not about actual beef in any way, like the food. I had no idea. No, like beef, like arguments. I thought at most it was a double meaning. I thought one of the meanings was the food. I had no idea. And I kind of was uninterested in watching a show about beef. Now I'm not. Now I'm interested. You should give it a chance. 
I, I, oh, I will now. I think you will enjoy the vibe. Each episode is like 35 minutes. Mm, love that. Love a good 35-minute episode. Yeah. Um, now, has A24 done other shows? Well, no, that's what I was saying earlier. I don't... As or you far as thought I, you were saying they haven't done other Netflix. I don't know. It's a good question. I, I Let me look. Let, uh, I'm going to do a quick search for this. Um, but I, I, if I had to venture a guess, I would say no. Oh, they have. Like what? What else we got? I'm looking at a very long list right now. <laughs> so it, maybe maybe this doesn't mean anything. Rami, that's a that's a popular one. Euphoria, oh, oh Euphoria is technically an A24 production. They're saying playing House Carmichael Show, Comrade Detective, Two Dope Queens, Random Acts of Flyness, Pod Save America, I'm Sorry, At Home with Amy Sedaris. I would have to follow them. Yeah, yeah, so I don't, yeah. R- R- Rami's another really popular one too, like what you just said. I think. Yeah, but as far as scripted fair, it doesn't seem like there's a lot. I mean, narrative fair. I'm, I'm just surprised that that was your take on Frasier. I was expecting us, I was expecting the segue here to be, oh, so we both recommend our things. And you were like, no, fuck that. No, I mean, I do, but I just, I, I look, I, I don't know. I don't, prove me wrong. I don't think, I don't think that the reboot's going to take the world by storm. Mm. Um, I'm not sure that people would watch the show if it were on now. And I'm not saying it's not good. The writing is great. The writing is really great, but it's just not what we want to see right now. But who knows? Maybe they'll maybe they'll factor that in because he's got a new life ahead of him. He's going back to Boston in the new show. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Okay. So what's the chances that that series ends with a... Uh, I know you said the thing about the Cheers thing earlier, but it ends with like a Ted dance and walking out like, I'm here to talk to you about the Cheers initiative. <laughs> um... That's a Marvel reference that you don't understand. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm just laughing at Ted Danson. I, uh, I don't know how it will end. Well, it's, I don't know. I don't think we're going to get more episodes of it, but who knows? Um, I'd say the chance is cloudy. That would have worked last week. Yeah. What am I supposed to do with that now? I don't know. Cloudy the Chance of Meatballs is one of the movies that's on our chain. Let's talk about the other movie on our chain, 1941, which we've actually talked about already a good amount, but let's just get into it full stop. No safety measures on whatsoever. Directed by Steven Spielberg. I'm going to say it one more time. This was the run of Steven Spielberg's filmography from the late 70s to the early 80s. Jaws in 1975. Close Encounters of the Third Kind in 1977. Then we have this movie in 1979, 1941. Confusing. Then we jump to 1981. Raiders of the Lost Ark, 1982. E.T., 1984. Indiana Jones, Temple of Doom. And then so on and so forth. He's on his way into becoming one of the most legendary directors ever. Um, So I think for a lot of people, and listen, I don't have a stake in this game, but I think for a lot of people, this is like a black sheep movie for him. It's not discussed much. It's considered one of his weakest films. Um, It was co-written by Robert Zemeckis, who himself was just years away from carving out his own legacy, of course. Uh The big one in 1985, Back to the Future. Um, But he co-wrote this film. Uh, there's a big ensemble cast in this one. Just some he, of the names. Well, he co-wrote it with Bob Gale, too, who also did Back to the Future. Which I did not know. Yeah. There you go. Uh, big ensemble cast. Dan Aykroyd, Ned Beatty, John Belushi, Lorraine Gary, the reason we're watching this film today. Uh, Murray Hamilton, Christopher Lee, Tim Matheson. I'm just going to skip around to names I recognize from this point on. We got John Candy in this. We got Penny Marshall in this. James Caan, the, another reason we're watching this. He makes a very small role. Mickey Rourke, this was his uh, debut film. This is the first time he ever acted in a film. Michael McKean, 
of course, of Better Call Saul fame and other things. Basically, the basic premise is we're a couple days after Pearl Harbor, the bombing of Pearl Harbor. World War II has been going on for a while now. Pearl Harbor has happened, and the state of California is terrified that they might be next. So as the military mobilizes to go to war across the U.S., this is about the paranoia and the hysterical efforts to fortify defenses on the California coast just in case the Japanese come calling to California. And from there, it's a satire of the the dangers of war, the hysteria surrounding war, um, the paranoia of attacks, um, even when the likelihood of attack is not high, uh, the incompetence and the infighting within the American public and the military. Uh, it targets a lot of things. It swings very wildly at these things. We both watched, and I know this was a point that you wanted to bring up, we both watched the director's cut of this film. The theatrical <sighs> cut is an hour 58. The director's cut is 226. Well, you watched the director's cut. I watched the first half of the regular cut, and then I watched the second half of the director's <laughs> cut. Partly because I was watching the first half on like Tubi or something, and they, they did not properly upload the film. And I, th I think this is common with that film on streaming services, the non-director's cut version. There are no captions for anything that the, the characters who are not speaking in English are saying. So I was just in the dark for like some pretty important exposition for the part for the for, for the, for the beginning of the movie. Yeah, that's a problem. Yeah, so then I had a switch to the other one, which happened to be the director's cut. Yeah, so there is a big contingent of characters that don't speak English, as we know. Um, a lot of the cast is American military members, but there are there's a big contingent of Japanese characters within a sub that's right off the coast. Uh, they're looking to target Hollywood, um, which they they have their roundabout ways of kind of trying to do. Uh, Christopher Lee also on board. He plays, uh, of course, he plays. I mean, Christopher Lee, of course, best known from Lord of the Rings, which we talked about with the Two Towers and the Star Wars movies and Dracula and everything. He plays Captain Wolfgang von Kleinschmidt. Uh, who is like the only German representative in the entire film. And it kind of it kind of illustrates the point of not only does the American military not have their shit together, but neither does the Japanese and the German military. There's a lot of infighting between those two factions and stuff. Everyone's an idiot in this movie. And the whole point is to make fun of everyone involved in this, um, you know, in this conflict. Now, we've talked about the idea of subjective comedy. And last week we talked about, Nick, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, and the pace at which the comedy of Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs moves at. I actually think this movie has a similar pace. It's just not as consistent with the jokes, and the jokes are very broad. There are a lot of jokes, though. There's a lot of comedy. It's almost a step away from Mel Brooks' movie, but it doesn't have this, like, the sizzle of a Mel Brooks Would movie. Would you relate it at all to, like... Okay, I, I see what you're saying with the pace. Would you... Did you feel any similarity to, like, Animal House in pacing and stuff? I would say so, yeah. Okay. Because that's what I was thinking. It's hard for me because those movies, I don't know, that pace just doesn't work for me, I think. Like, like I was saying last episode, I, I think I am 
more used to like faster pace and just I don't, there, there's a difference between that and something like we were talking about faster pace with like cloudy with a chance i don't really know there's a lot of jokes but there's still room around them or something it's less like in your face it is a long movie i don't know like that also is they there could they could cut down on the downtime a little bit I, aside from the pacing of jokes like the the kind of directorial pace of it i felt like it was slow but i think a lot of old comedies are like that and it's more of like a tech issue more than anything else um, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I think I kind of like this movie. I don't think it's amazing. Um, but I think it's a big swing and a, not a miss, but like not a hard hit either. You know what I mean? Again, going mm -hmm. back to the baseball metaphors. I, there's a lot of stuff in this that I like. Uh, I think Spielberg doesn't let the mixed results of the material hinder his directions. I think he directs the hell out of this movie. This movie looks great. It has fantastic camera movement, great cinematography by um, William A. Fraker. Uh, the camera moves great. John Williams' score is really good. The sets and the practical effects, particularly a lot of the flying stuff. John Belushi plays a pilot and a lot of the stuff with his character flying and the crashes that his character kind of maneuvers around looks really great especially think, for late 1970s um do you think that having that when, having that high quality you know effects and visual look steps on the humor though when the humor is not strong enough or no i don't I kinda, think he, okay why why do you think so i don't know i i the movie didn't want me to take it seriously as an action movie i think and um so i didn't care about like what that stuff was looking yeah, like. Yeah, but that, I feel like, I don't know. he shouldn't dumb down his film. No, he shouldn't it. dumb down, but... So what would you, like, you would have preferred that it looked cheaper? No, I wouldn't have preferred that it look cheaper. I just would have preferred the jokes be funnier. Right, well, that's a whole, that's a whole separate Which is its thing. own, yeah, I don't know. The movie cost $35 million to make. It only made $94 million. I mean, it, by, it was not very financially successful. However... It has kind of had a little bit of a praise of a repraisal over the last few years, especially directed uh, to this specific cut that we watched. Well, I watched in full, you watched in part. Yeah. Um, I, I think I, in isolated pockets, there are moments of the comedy that I thought I really liked. Um, I don't really, I don't really connect with John Belushi, which feels like kind of like a controversial thing to say. But I think the only time I've really found him like hilarious is like Blues Brothers. Other yeah. than that, it's just like, it's kind of an, talk about an outdated style. I mean, hot take. I kind of feel like this about Chris Farley too, a little bit. But. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Because I was going to say that the difference to me between the two, and it might just be because Farley's more recent, um, is Farley's comedy seems to translate across generations. And I didn't quite feel that way about Pelosi. But maybe, who knows? Maybe I'm wrong, Andrew. There, I mean, there are some... Like the satire isn't the smartest either. It's just, it's making fun. It's the idea is that it's like shooting wildly at everybody. Like the Japanese, like trying to infiltrate uh, the United States by dressing up as Christmas trees, kidnapping this guy named Hollis Wood, and thinking he's the like the leader of Hollywood and that he's mm -hmm. going to, um, you know, that he's going to lead them to the place that they want to bomb, or the idea that the military contacts this like like small town couple that lives on the coast. And has them set up a Gatling gun on the side of the house to try to be the yeah. main defense force. Right. Or that they set up guys in a Ferris wheel off the coast to protect the country. It's like the idea that like nobody knows what the hell they were doing at this point. 
the general that wants nothing to do with it, that just wants to go watch his movies, very relatable. He just sits in Dumbo while there's riots going on in the streets. Um, how did you feel about, I mean, the very first joke you see in it is a parody of Jaws. You know, I thought that was fascinating to me. Right? I, I'm glad you brought that up. The balls to parody your own movie right after four years before. Yeah. That's crazy. Which is interesting because like... He knew it was iconic already. Or maybe he wouldn't have done it if he knew how iconic it would be. Now, is the joke that funny? Nah, not really. It's but. not. And it was weird because at the beginning I, I was like, oh, wow, this movie's starting similar to, George, to, to Jaws and I didn't think it was on purpose. And then obviously it becomes on purpose. And then I was just like, is this whole movie going to be a parody of Jaws? Because I knew Larry and Gary was going to be in it. Um, I, I, I kind of feel like he wouldn't have done it had Jaws become as significant as it is culturally. Yeah, I think I agree with you. You know? Yeah. Um, Although I, we weren't there, so there's, it's, there's no way we but could it, know. Yeah, but, it, but it was weird. And I guess, you know, there's been a lot of Jaws parodies and a lot of use the Jaws score for something uh, and and have humor in that. But I, I guess he was the first to parody it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, that was really interesting. I really think he was inspired a lot by like the screwball comedies of the earlier parts of the decade. Like the Mel yeah, Bro- I mean, so. me mentioning Mel Brooks, like it feels like he was trying to make a war movie, war movie version of Blazing Saddles. There's just like so many like ridiculous things that happen. Like at one point, this guy's trying to steal a suit so that he can go impress a girl. So he sets off the air raid alarm just so everybody gets lost in the hysteria so he can walk out with the suit. Another time, there's like a guy eating his soup and he's wearing a gas mask so he can suck up the soup into the gas mask. Like, like visual humor like that, that is so ridiculous. And it all culminates in that giant, massive dance number that turns into a fight between uh-huh. the, the Navy officers and the Army officers that feels exactly like the ending of Blazing Saddles. Like, it just feels like his attempt to do something like that. And maybe you're right, because he hasn't returned to that specific style. Like, his movies are funny, but they don't ha- they're don't they not farcical like this is. Yeah. And I think he realized that it didn't 100% work, but I think he should give himself a little bit of credit, because for me... I would say it was closer to a 50-50 split of what worked and what didn't, which, as I was talking about kind of, I don't know if it was this week or last week, the ratio of jokes and what I give a rating for, it hits that, like, I laughed or found 15 to 20 things amusing, so it's probably in a three and a half out of five range for me. Mm -hmm. Well, he, I was reading, like, interviews that he has given about it, and, well, first what I thought was interesting, I'm just going to quote other people who are smarter than me now, um... Richard Brody, critic in The New Yorker, said that it's the movie where Spielberg came closer, came nearest to cutting loose, and it's the uh, its failure combined with his need for success inhibited him maybe definitively. They're saying like the failure of this movie really discouraged him from doing comedy again. Is is what they were saying? That, I mean, and, that's fascinating. The idea that he felt that he needs to be. Every movie from now on needs to be so controlled and so deliberate. Now, that was like an outward, I guess, accusation. In 1990, Spielberg said that the kind of mediocre um, reception of the film uh, was one of the biggest things that he learned. He said he was arrogant during the making of it because he had just come off of Jaws and Close Encounters. And uh, there was an arrogance to it that that kind of led him to make like creative decisions he you know what they Failure is one of the greatest teachers. Um, it's almost it's it. The way you frame that is fascinating, and the way that he looks at it is fascinating to me. This is first of all that was pre 
Jurassic Park, Schindler's mm-hmm. List, I mean, West Side Story, everything he's made since then. So I thought that was fascinating, that time period. But also, if you have this kind of butterfly effect, Mandela's effect of, hey, this movie's great, maybe he doesn't challenge himself as much as he does with Raiders and E.T. You know what I mean? Yeah. Maybe maybe this was one of the most influential movies of his filmography, sneakily, because people don't like it. <laughs> um, you know, I'm going to pull one more quote out at you, Andrew, because um, this is interesting because I feel like it kind of goes against what you said. Um, and this is coming from Wikipedia, which is a renowned source. Uh, oh, yeah. He also, reg- Spielberg regretted not ceding control of the action and miniature sequences, such as a Ferris wheel collapse, to second unit directors and model units, which he would do in Raiders of the Lost Ark, his next film. He's not as happy with the action sequences as you are. I never said that they were amazing. I just think even Spielberg at 70%, it's very clear... Right. His talent level. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? There there are certain... Like, that thing with the Ferris wheel is just the way that it blends the backgrounds and everything. The fact that it, it doesn't look super dated, I think, is impressive. You know what I mean? Also, to that point, according to Jack Nicholson, when Stanley Kubrick watched the movie, he told Spielberg that it was great, but not funny. Yeah, I can see that. Interesting. Yeah. See, that's why... When 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 the movie is built the that's way it is, though, it... it I, I just felt like I was really led to disappointment more because it's billed so much as a comedy, I guess. That's very interesting. I think I agree with that. Although, you know, I did think it was parts of it were funny. Isolated things. It's hard to have people like John Candy and Dan Aykroyd in your movie and not at least get something out of it. You well, The Shining I mean? Man didn't think it was funny. <laughs> I, will, I will say Dan Aykroyd, like, his character was, like, kind of the straight man, which I thought was kind of interesting. You know what I mean? Like, he didn't have a lot of, like, comedic things to do. He gives this big Independence Day-esque speech, too, at one point. Um, Mm -hmm. But he's just kind of like a guy. He's not, like, funny in the movie. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, You know, I don't know. I'm not surprised that it hasn't had the staying power as far as quality goes uh, alone. I think that's, you know, I don't think, I don't really think it's ripe for, like, hey, check out this, like, beloved Forgotten Spielberg classic, like a reappraisal, really. Um, also, culturally, though, I think it's just so dated that yeah. it, it, you know, will remain a, a Forgotten Spielberg movie. I, I, t- I mean, I haven't done any kind of research on this point specifically, but I'm sure there are a lot of articles, at least, like, in defense of 1941. You know what I mean? It seems like one of those kind of movies that, like, hey, I found <laughs> something in this. Right. Like, like, it's not, it's not universally reviled, which... It being like the, towards the bottom of the barrel of his filmography really speaks to just how iconic of a figure he is in film history. I mean, you say the same thing about Marty too. Like, what's the worst Marty movie? You know. Um, speaking of, I just watched the movie Marty, by the way. But that's a that's a different segment. Yeah, not yeah. That was only partially <laughs> speaking. Um, I speaking to the cultural thing too. The you know some of the old taglines and an alternative title for the movie. All things I really can't repeat because they involve um, racial slurs against Japanese. Oh, yeah. But um, I think that speaks to why also, you know, while the movie itself wasn't focused on that, the it's playing, it's not subverting, but it's taking advantage of like that, mm-hmm. that, um, that kind of like racial ethnic panic that was like going on. Um, and it's, I don't know, it's weird. I'm not looking for the movie to, like, reconcile it, but it's its still playing off of it, I guess, because it was, 
I, I don't know what the culture was like. The but you don't think it was like in 75. You don't think it's making fun of how Americans handled that? No, I think it is. Uh, can I? But I think there wasn't enough. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Can I offer you a hypothetical? Yeah. Because there's a lot of shit in this movie, and some of it definitely can be excised. Is this movie funnier if we never see any Japanese or German characters? If the whole thing is about just the hysteria of the Americans thinking that the Japanese and German are coming and just like absolutely collapsing and self self imploding because of that. Um yeah, yeah, I think so. Or or seeing them but like they're not actually they're just there. They're not Yeah, but they're just there and they're not depicted the same way. I think that um yeah, I think it would be I think that's the kind of movie that would be made now. Yeah. It's more it's more again like you said this is making fun of America but but it, uh, or the American response, but that would be more, I don't know, maybe that's what Adam McKay would have done or something. It's more, um, but that also reminded me, by the way, that I did enjoy, although I missed it at first because I didn't have the captions from the first version I saw, I enjoyed the humor of um, the Japanese commander and the German commander talking to each other in different languages, but knowing what they were saying. Yeah. Like that was, I didn't, I didn't realize that at first because I, there were no captions, so I, I didn't catch they were speaking in two different languages. Yeah, it, it, like the, the one German guy seeming like the tag-along, too, was kind of mm-hmm. interesting. I wonder if that was what the conflict was actually like or whatever. I don't know. Is there any like specific, more specific things that you want to like touch on in terms of stuff? I thought it was interesting that this is basically a Christmas movie um, in a weird way. I guess so. I guess it is a Christmas movie in a weird way. I have, I, I have one... Um, note that I actually can't remember what it means because it was like weeks ago. Um, but I wrote chuckling ventriloquist dummy. Can oh, you remind oh. me what that is? Because uh, I don't know if this is a good or a bad note, <laughs> like a positive or a negative note. Yeah, so somebody like gets thrown into the... It was the guys on the Ferris wheel. He had a ventriloquist dummy. He gets thrown into the water and he's still doing the ventriloquist thing when he gets into the water, I think. Okay. You know, still doesn't ring a bell me. That's crazy. Yeah, he's like, uh, the guy's pissed that he has to go up into the Ferris wheel with his other guy he finds annoying. And that guy has a ventriloquist dummy, I believe. Um, Now, do you think, I mean, you didn't see the non-director's cut, but do you think maybe that, uh, as far as runtime goes, would that be better for it? Yeah, I think so. You're less bothered by a long movie than I am now. Yeah, no, every movie is the length that it should be, except, I mean, they can feel too long and that could be a detriment, but like, I have no problem sitting through a three-hour movie and will not dock it for being three hours if the three hours is justified. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, I don't know. It's just like there's a lot of stuff in this that could have been cut. It's a lot of disseparate elements that, in theory, all the all the main characters end up back together. Yeah, that's it, it's kind of vignette in a way, right? It's vignette that eventually threads together. Yeah. You know, it's... I'm not... I'm just not... Yeah. Yeah. So, for example, there's a big subplot with Captain Burkhead, played by Tim Matheson, and he's trying to seduce Donna Stratton, who's this woman, played by Nancy Allen, who's, like, wildly attracted to people who can fly planes. Um, So he pretends like he knows how to fly the plane, he gets in her pants, but then he ends up in a situation where he has to end up in the air um, Mm -hmm. and doesn't know how to actually fly this plane. And that eventually intersects with the John Belushi part, um, where he's just, like, an American pilot, kind of roaming free and patrolling in the area, but he also seems like he might be the enemy or whatever. It's very unclear why he's around. And literally, they all crash together to that big finale where the Japanese kind of target the coast. And uh, they do band together and defeat the Japanese. 
but at what cost? You know what I mean? Like, it's like a... Right. It, it took all this effort just to take down one sub. Everybody needs to get their shit together if they're going to be fine. Uh, so it all... I mean, it all does come together eventually, but you're right. It, the, you can cut one or two of these subplots and be fine. Yeah, there's something about it that... Um, I don't know. Have you ever seen Empire Records? I just watched that recently. I've not. I also... I feel like a tendency in some, like, old National Lampoon or National Lampoon wannabe movies would do it's like it's a lot of just kind of like sketches loosely tied together not sketches but a lot of separate plots just tied together for like with a loose reason that times this felt like that um yeah okay yeah i get that um that, that, i mean the movies like exciter i are like random movies that are not good that nobody saw um by the way some foreign movie poster for this for 1941 this will only work for you because i can't show it on mic to everybody is uh oh a jaws Shark teeth with surrounding Steven Spielberg on that, Periscope. That is so, so shameless. Really, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really, just marketing this as like another uh, Spielberg film. Uh, but yeah, look, I feel I feel more harshly about it. Than yeah, you I was gonna say. So it seems like you're kind of. Are you thumbs down? You would say, or yeah, okay, yeah, I'm thumbs down on it. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm, I'm mild thumbs up, but I completely understand where you're coming from. I just don't think it it, it did exactly what it wanted to do. You know what I mean? Like, even compared to older movies of that same time that just hold up better because they're tighter. Uh, the the, the runtime also really hurts, now that I even talk about it even more. Like, those movies that it's clearly somewhat influenced by are significantly shorter and get in and out faster, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think that... And maybe that's just Spielberg not having comedic pacing. Or not having that, you know, Comedian yeah, that language. Experience. Yeah, right. Yeah. We really talk about Lorraine Carey, but good job, Lorraine. Good job. Oh, good, 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 good job. You did great. James Caan is not in the movie, so it's not um, what I'm talking about. He, he, yeah, so He's that's where that plan. is where, yeah, he makes a cameo. It might not even be him, who knows? Um, oh, that would be devastating if it's not him, because that would break the chain. You want to make a new one? Do I ever. Nick, I have 10 actors in front of me right now, so I need you to pick a number between 1 to 10 to figure out how we're going to get uh, Lorraine Gary out of this chain. Get out of here, Lorraine. Uh, um, I'm going to say uh, two. Oh, you're going to like this a lot. Lorraine Gary, two, Robert De Niro. <gasps> well done. Oh, my gosh. It's time. Oh Bobby gosh. D time. Oh, my gosh. Okay. It's definitely oh, going to be some is... 70s or 80s movie, definitely. I've, I've watched oh. some real clunkers with him recently. <laughs> new, and, new and old, so yeah. I'm afraid. All right, Andy, are you ready? Yes. Uh, Lorraine Gary, Robert De Niro, separated by two. Connecting actor, Jack Kehoe. I had a who, friend in uh, college with that exact name. Really? How do you spell it? Uh, K-E-O-U-G-H, I think. Well, this is K-E-H-O-E. Yeah, no, not, not like that. Um, Lorraine and Jack uh, appeared together in a film I've not seen, but I've heard about. 1976's Car Wash. Okay. Richard I've Pryor. Heard as well. Jack Kehoe and Robert De Niro appeared together in a film I've heard much about, Midnight Run, 1988. Wow, this is, this is cool. So we're actually getting some older movies now. Car Wash, next episode of the Cinema Chain Gang. Midnight Run. After that, I'm excited to have to watch it. All right, Car Wash, next wow. episode of the Cinema Chain Gang podcast. For Nick Ricardo, I'm Andrew J. The chain continues. Rip Papuli, Rip Ray, and Rip Tony. Rip Tony.